0: Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Paul McLean. I'm the Associate Rector of Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and we're delighted that you joined us today for this podcast conversation with Jamar Tisby and uh, give you a little background about how this came about. Calvary, for almost 100 years, has had a Lenten preaching series, and we still do. Uh, And uh, Jamar was scheduled to be one of our speakers in late March, uh, both to preach to us uh, in the afternoon and then in the evening. He and I were to have a podcast similar to this, But uh, with the coronavirus, with all the developments, with the new restrictions uh, by the city of Memphis and others, uh, we, of course, had to cancel the second half of our series. But we, as we talked, uh, our clergy team and others talked, we said, you know, it would be great if we still did some podcasts with some of our speakers. So many people were so disappointed that they missed out on that part of our program. And so we're delighted that Jamar is willing to join us from Helena, Arkansas, from his home and his makeshift podcast studio there. Yes, and, sir. Uh, yes, sir. And uh, we're delighted to have him tell you a little bit about Jamar. He's the author of a book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the the American Church's complicity in racism. And we at Calvary studied that book during the season of Epiphany from January to February. Jamar was gracious enough to come and join us for our final session. We were so so delighted with that. Jamar is a I think a native of Waukegan, Illinois. Is that right? Yes, sir. And uh, he was a classmate of Melissa or Missy Wilkinson, who is married to the Reverend Amber Carswell, my fellow associate rector here at Calvary. So <laughs> there's, in the Episcopal Church or in anything, there's always uh, maybe one degree of separation. He has a Bachelor of Arts degree from Notre Dame, Master of Divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary. And most importantly in my book, he's a Ph.D. candidate at my alma mater, Ole Miss, hotty toddy in history. Uh, Noel Wilson, who's a Calvary parishioner, is head of the Department of History there and speaks so highly of Jamar. He is president of The Witness, a black Christian collective, and co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast. And Jamar, uh, I think in these days, this time, maybe the first question should be, how are you doing? How are you faring in these times, and how's all your family and those you love? Are you okay?
2: Health-wise, we're okay, thankfully. Uh, we we have been healthy Praise be to God, and it's really interesting, you know we live in a rural area, so we there wasn't a whole lot of going out and about in town anyway. We generally leave the house to go get groceries or go to a restaurant and and that's about it so in terms of sort of the the stay at home kind of things it's it's not a huge shift for us. We are already homeschooling our child uh but it is strange it, it it's a very strange time I think the the biggest adjustment for me is making a mental shift to to really trying to wrap my head around that this is this is going to be a while you know this isn't a week or two and and it's not a point in time where even when you know the virus peaks in one area it might take weeks to get to another area. So it's going to come in waves. So it's just sort of holding on through all the ebbs and flows of all of this without having any certainty about a, a, a clear end or a rhythm or or very knowing really well what to expect at all. That's, that's what I'm daily trying to do.
1: Well, I'm glad you're all well. One of the questions I'd like to begin with is, how has this pandemic impacted communities and peoples of color? And along with that, as a historian, uh, do you see parallels in the past that could inform our our present situation, how we're trying to make meaning of it, and how we're trying to re- especially respond as people of faith, as the Church?
2: Great question, and I'm glad you asked it. Uh, there's a old saying that says, when white folks get a cold, black folks get pneumonia. And, uh, you know, it, it sort of gets at the idea that, you know, whatever is affecting white people and the way it affects them is sort of amplified among black people due to centuries of discrimination and marginalization and oppression. So unfortunately, a lot a lot of corollaries in terms of life expectancy, health rates, medical care falls along racial lines. And that's going to be true with the coronavirus. I think one thing that is very telling and very worrisome. Is that we don't have a lot of data around racial demographics and how it's affecting different populations in different ways. So if you're if you're not measuring it or if we, or you're not releasing that data, then we really don't know what's happening. And so we can get these kind of anecdotal impressions. We can look at other data to try to put together a story, but um, we should be looking. Precisely at, you know, not only regional information, but also racial and ethnic information and seeing that we're receiving equitable health care.
1: Yeah, it was interesting to me. I heard on NPR the other day that the CDC is not really recording any racial demographics in the numbers of cases that we see on the television every five minutes or the number of deaths. Uh, I did hear in that same piece that the first large uh, number of deaths in the Milwaukee area were African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And of course, I would not have known that just from statistical information, but you know it more anecdotally, as you were saying, but. Uh, You know, I think there are concerns, too, about uh, African-Americans getting adequate, uh, having adequate availability to test uh, for COVID-19. But also uh, the recent CARES Act that was passed last week (laughs) makes an assumption that all of us have bank accounts for those $1,200 checks to be direct deposited into and probably for people of color. That may not be the case percentage-wise. It also presupposes uh, the stay-at-home orders that we all have a home to go to, and
2: that's not always the case. That's absolutely. Right. Uh,
1: would you elaborate yeah. on that?
2: Where, where I live in uh, the Delta region of Arkansas, it is, uh, there was a USA Today article back about a year ago. It, it listed this county as the fourth poorest county in the nation, and uh, the population in my town is 75% black. And that's, uh, you know, it's true across the Delta that that many counties are majority black. This goes back to sharecropping and back to slavery, where plantation owners needed more laborers than people who actually own the land. And so that, that pattern has persisted, and so has the poverty. And so uh, the poverty rate, in my county is about double the national average. Over 40 percent are living at or below the poverty line. And uh, I used to be a public charter school teacher and know firsthand that a lot of our families are making tough decisions between, you know, paying a light bill or getting a repair done on their car. And when you when you look at, you know, assumptions about, People's wealth or residences—it's communities like this that get hit the hardest. A lot of folks don't have bank accounts; they're living uh, check to check. They might even be just getting cash for odd jobs here and there. So, you know, it just impresses on me, especially from a faith perspective, that if it doesn't work for the the most marginalized, if it doesn't work for what Howard Thurman called the disinherited, then who is it working for?
1: And that gets us uh, sort of back to your book, your project, and and uh, one of the things that The Color of Compromise, your book, did take me into is is the idea of collective or communal or institutional sin over the course of centuries, and how I think we, uh, I, like you, uh, grew up in the evangelical tradition, I grew up as a Southern Baptist, and a lot of emphasis was on personal or individual sin as well as individual salvation and thinking about, well, I didn't commit a murder today. As far as I know, I haven't stolen anything. But I could still be complicit in an institutional structure that penalizes or or degrades other people, my neighbors. Uh, Talk to us about your thoughts about collective or communal sin
2: and how that can be a part of our consciousness. So I think in the Bible, we have ample... um, scriptural evidence or or backing uh, about this idea of communal sin. I was preaching through uh, the book of Ezra, and at one point, Ezra, who is this man described as learned in the law, he does a prayer of confession, and he does it for... On On behalf of the entire people of uh, Israel who have returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, but he also says, "You know we have been straying from God for generations, and he actually repents and and uh petitions God on behalf of the people who came before him, which Ezra is not responsible for what they did right i mean he he didn't commit the the grievances that they did, right, but at the same time, he feels that as a leader of the people and as one of God's followers, he's, he's in this, you know? He may not be guilty for it, but he is responsible for doing something about it. And that's, that's where we are in, uh, in terms of our racial history as a church and a nation. None of us today actually owned slaves. Um, very few of us probably actively segregated in terms of just age range and whatnot. But we've inherited the world that those – systems and practices created. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? And especially for folks in the racial majority, for white folks, acknowledging that there has been some benefit to the marginalization of people of color, particularly African Americans, and saying that, you know, I may not have created this system, but I do benefit from it. And so what is my responsibility here in terms of the equitable distribution of privileges and advantages in our society?
1: Yeah and uh, uh toward the end of your book you do talk about some things that we could do and, and it was interesting too that you 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 uh in your epilogue I think you said you know maybe the white church doesn't have as much a how to problem as a want to problem <laughs> that we've got to want to do this and I think that that too is engendering that real passion to do this but uh you refer to the arc of racial justice ARC awareness relationships commitment tell us about that concept and maybe concrete steps in each of those categories that uh, uh, we who do have white privilege could could take some steps toward a more just
2: society, maybe a more loving, more inclusive church? Thanks for asking that question. The most frequent question I get when I talk about these issues is, what do we do? And so I praise God that there seems to be a, a growing swell of support for racial justice, but a lot of times people are just wondering, how do we get involved? How do we get engaged? And so the ARC of Racial Justice is a framework that I came up with to kind of help us think through it. It's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And what I think is helpful about it is that... um, the goal is not to keep all of them in perfect balance, right? The, the the goal is to bear in mind all three of these areas so that we're not getting too imbalanced in one or another area. And so awareness is the the knowledge part, the information part of fighting racism. Racism operates according to a playbook. It changes slightly over the ages, but in general, it's, it's a pretty universal playbook, and they don't try to hide their tactics, uh, but we need to know it. And so building awareness comes in a lot of ways. We live in the information age, so it's never been easier or more accessible to learn about race and racial justice from – uh, listening to podcasts like this one to watching documentaries like 13th or the PBS documentary, The African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross, to uh, reading books, going to events, all of those kinds of things, build your knowledge. But you can't stop there, right? It's not enough to have a big head. Uh, you also have to have relationships Uh, This is one of the things that we can never get away from if we're talking about racial justice. We can never come to have harmony between one another if we don't actually have relationships across racial and ethnic lines. And so this is a concept that has been, I think, uh, watered down in a lot of ways where people will sort of harp on this idea of racial reconciliation as being the mere presence of different people in the same space or the same denomination – or it'll be you know the trope, hey, some of my best friends are black, right? So I can't be racist. Obviously, I have relationships. Nevertheless, even though it's a concept that has been uh, weakened to some extent, there's no substitute for putting a name and a face and an identity and a heart behind uh, the statistics that – People are more than a color. They're more than an ethnicity. They're more than where they came from. They're human beings created in the image of God. And it's getting face to face that helps spur us on to to love and good works. And then lastly, is the commitment aspect, uh, and that means a commitment to systemic and institutional change. So where the racial racial reconciliation paradigm falls short is that it doesn't do anything about the structural problems. Uh, it doesn't matter how many cups of coffee I have with you or how many you know panel conversations we attend, it's not going to do a thing about mass incarceration. It's not going to do a thing about the fact that black women die in maternity-related deaths at two to three times the rate of white women. So what are we going to do about that is the question, and that's where commitment comes in. There's a lot of different ways to demonstrate your commitment. I think, you know, politically, a, a nonpartisan way that that is respectful of individual dignity is voter registration and voting rights and making sure that we do indeed have one person, one vote. Another way is sort of along the cultural end. One of the things that that I would love to see are more celebrations of Juneteenth, which is the oldest celebration of black emancipation in the country. Uh, That's a milestone, uh, not just in uh, racial history, but in U.S. history in general. So how can we think along bigger structural lines like that?
1: Yeah, one of the most uh, interesting things uh, in, the, in your appearance with us at our book study was one of our parishioners had the courage to ask the what would be the most obvious question when you were gathered with us. We had uh, 30 parishioners there who were all white, and you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and she had the courage to say, ask, uh, look at us. We're a progressive, Historically progressive downtown church. We're active in all sorts of outreach ministry. Yet uh, we could probably count the number of uh, African American parishioners on two hands. If we actually counted those who come for the community breakfast every Sunday, we could probably that would probably the, maybe the largest part of our congregation. But but mm-hmm. we we don't count it that way, which says something. Maybe says something about us too. Uh, but. Uh, you, you said, she asked, how can we become a more integrated church? And you said, well, to have an integrated church, you must have integrated lives. That's right. And that really spoke to me and I think to everyone in the room, and it was an aha moment. But tell us more about how we can have integrated lives and what that means, and maybe models of, of communities of faith
2: who have done that. So I think in general, we're really limiting ourselves if— as people of faith, we only look at our you know weekly faith gathering as the barometer of integration or racial reconciliation or racial justice. It's a lot bigger than that. And, and even if you do have an integrated service on Sunday, is, is that it? Is that the goal? And... What, what I'm saying is we have to have integrated lives. So what's happening Monday through Saturday, because if you're not having meaningful relationships with people across racial, ethnic, and cultural lines in your everyday life, well, how then could you reasonably expect your local congregation to, to have any of that kind of integration as well. So um, I'm really trying to push back against this, putting all of our energy just into what happens for a couple of hours on Sunday morning, and really thinking much more holistically about how do our entire lives look. Now, how do you do that? Well, to be quite honest, it's going to be harder for white folks because uh, you're in the majority, and throughout centuries of U.S. history, intentional barriers have been put up to keep people separate. So a big part of it is going to be residential. That's a very tricky thing because you don't want to add to gentrification or force people out who are lower income. I don't know that anyone's got the magic bullet who has figured this out yet, but one thing could be uh, staying in a neighborhood that is changing in terms of class and racial demographics. A lot of people with the means just up and move at that point. Um, Another way is to work for just districting laws and tax laws. And so even if you don't physically live in this location, making sure that uh, you can have people of varying incomes in one location. Another big one that, that really gets all in people's business is where you send your kids to school. A lot of that a lot of the segregation that's happening is ongoing because we are keeping our schools racially and ethnically separate. Uh, it's a big choice, right? Do you do you put your children in a situation where you have a school with fewer resources, maybe doesn't perform as well uh, on standardized testing, but you get them in, a situation where they can actually encounter different people, and so so can you through parents and families. So, really looking at where you live, where you're you're sending your kids to school, are you reiterating the patterns of segregation, or even in your daily personal life and your personal family choices, are you somehow pushing back against it?
1: And I wanted to go back to to uh, to your book and just talk about uh, how did how did this book come about for you, and and why did you write it? And maybe along the way, tell a little bit about your personal. Spiritual journey as a someone who grew up in the evangelical tradition as a Southern Baptist, you speak our language fluently in terms of <laughs> evangelical and personal salvation. A great, un, you have a great understanding of that. Uh, Billy Graham plays a huge role in the second half of your book, and uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your journey and then how you how it came about that you wrote this book. It seems to, to me part of it, it seems to be, is obviously a critique of. The white evangelical tradition, but it really applies
2: to us in the mainstream, and really, it has. There's something there for all of us. I think so. I think so, for sure. My journey, I became a Christian really in white evangelical circles. It was through the ministry of a high school youth group that I came to know about Jesus and uh, take Christianity as as my personal religion, and so I kind of kept in that stream with the churches I went to along the way. I've I've, you know, been in missionary Baptist churches. I've I've had a, a bunch of time in Catholic school growing up and then in college as well. So I've had some different exposures, but it's really been in evangelical circles that have been some of my most formative experiences. I was always used to well, I was I was always a minority racially speaking. And so I was You know, well acquainted with what that was like, but it really came to a head uh, from the period of about 2014 to 2017 there was a whole lot happening in that time racially. So August 2014, a black teenager in this little town that I'd never heard of called Ferguson, Missouri, he is killed by a white police officer. That ignites a firestorm of racial tension across the United States. Seeing white evangelical responses to Black Lives Matter and pushing back that all lives matter and blue lives matter and not understanding at all what what black people were saying were really crying out and lamenting that that was part of it and then you know we think of the 2016 election but it really started back in 2015 when the current president comes down the escalator in his own hotel and says that Mexicans are sending rapists across the border and using this kind of really divisive language and then seeing in in great stark relief the allegiance of so many white evangelicals to the Republican party and then, of course, the election with the, the 81% of white evangelicals who voted pulling the lever for the 45th president, all of that kind of on top of the Charleston Emanuel 9 shooting tragedy, the, the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally, the slew of cell phone videos of unarmed black people getting killed by police officers, all of this is just happening right on top. And I'm speaking, I'm writing publicly about race and justice, and man, the pile on from white evangelicals, many of whom I knew personally, many of whom I'd gone to seminary with or church with, it was it was bracing, and it was a wake-up call. Uh, so that's part of what was behind the book, is, is saying, look, the stuff I'm saying is not new, and the stuff that we are talking about today is not new. As a matter of fact, it's been part of the American church story, particularly the white evangelical church story in in North America, for hundreds of years. So let's just let's walk through it in an accessible way in a historical survey in one book. Um, you mentioned Dr. Wilson; she's the head of the history department at the University of Mississippi. I was going through coursework in my PhD program and coming across all these stories and knowing that very, very few people have uh, the luxury or the privilege of just reading history all day, wanting to sort of consolidate that as an introduction into this book, and that's kind of how The Color of Compromise came about.
1: Uh, One of the passages that struck me right at the beginning is, uh, and you you do a wonderful job of going through kind of the history of uh, the U.S. and uh, seeing it in a way that maybe we haven't seen it before, seeing it through the lens of race. But I was really struck at the Virginia Assembly enacting this in the uh, 1667, uh, this statue. It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism does not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. And I think of the uh, baptismal vows that uh, we take and families take and, and talking about upholding the dignity of every other human being Uh, how that's a part of that, how that each of us baptized is to be uh, now a citizen or a part of the kingdom of God, and we're to grow in that and in love for each other, and how that act of the legislature said that act of baptism really changed the meaning of baptism, uh, at least from a legal standpoint. But uh, that goes back to the very beginning. Tell us about that and how your journey to the earliest part of the history
2: affected you. That stuck out to me as well, because... For a couple of reasons, number one, it's all the way back in sixteen sixty seven so this is a hundred years before the Declaration of Independence, more than a hundred years before the ratification of the Constitution. So this predates the political entity known as the United States, right So when we're talking about race and Christianity, there's no you know era that was great that we can go back to or make it great again. Um, there's, there's, there's no golden age in, in sort of race relations in terms of the church in the United States. And then the second reason it stuck out is because you had this confluence of race, religion, and politics. So you have this political entity, the Virginia Assembly, that's passing a law about religion, baptism, based on race. And so that tells me, Race, religion, and politics are all intertwined. We can talk about them separately, but if we want to pursue justice in one area, we've got to pursue justice in all those areas. And then it's just so blatant, right? So, you know, what could be more sort of open and welcoming and inviting than baptism? Welcoming someone into the household of faith, who's who's making a profession of faith in Christ, and you're supposed to be welcoming them as a a brother or sister, and then you say, "Yes, you're my brother or sister spiritually, kind of, but uh, when it comes to you know your actual well-being here on earth right now, guess what? You're out of luck. Um, It's as if I wrote in the book. It's as if they said, you know, God can have your soul, but we own your body."
1: And you you spoke, too, uh, in the book about race as a social construct. And I think uh, uh, that really spoke to our group, and we had a lot of conversations about that. And, and a, as you said, uh, if it can be constructed, it can be deconstructed. But, uh, but what does that mean for race to be a social construct?
2: That's a really important question that I think a lot of people don't consciously think about enough, especially if you're in the majority. So if you're in a majority, you seldom think about race, um, unless you have to. And then when you hear discussions about race, it can feel very accusatory, right? Like you're, like it sounds like we're calling all white people bad just because you're white. What we're critiquing is not your humanity or your individual virtue, it's this construct or this concept of whiteness, uh, this idea that a certain group of people in this case based on a phenotypical feature, skin color, are superior or central in our society. And that is something that had to be constructed, right? It, it had to be constructed in the sense that it's not rooted in biology. The amount of melanin that someone has it ha- it has no bearing on their virtue or intelligence or where they should you know, sit in society nor is it rooted in creation or ontology, right? We go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, all people being created in the image and likeness of God gives us inherent dignity, inherent equality. And so where does this concept of race come in? It actually has to be built, devised, created, and that's done through laws and policies and customs like the Virginia Assembly. Uh, It's done through, um, you know, the exclusionary tactics when the GI Bill was being handed out uh, and not given in equal or fair measure to black people. It is something that people have made deliberate choices to, to create. Now, just because race is a construct doesn't mean it's not real. That's a big distinction that we have to make is that even though it's not rooted in biology or ontology, race has real-world impact and effects that we have to deal with. But especially if you are someone who believes you're white or has bought into this idea of whiteness, it's something to be conscious of so that you can constantly dis- consciously distance yourself from the sort of unfair advantages and unearned privileges that come with white being so central in our society. Does that make sense? It's it a does. <laughs> it does. It is a lot.
1: Well, we'll take a break to say I'm Paul McLean, Associate Rector of Calvary Episcopal Church at Memphis, Tennessee, in conversation with Jamar Tisby, author of The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. And Jamar, in your book... There seems to be a a counter-narrative of what could have happened, especially about the church's response to what was there in the beginning, slavery, the marginalized, bondage, and the church, at its best, is the sanctuary, the place for the marginalized, the place that lifts them up, the place that tells truth to power, the prophetic voice, but... uh, the church, in many ways, as you say in your title, was complicit instead in the in the structure that was taking place, and there just seemed to be a whole series of missed opportunities from the very beginning in the evangelical movement that you describe. But also, you do touch on mainline churches that we were as, just as complicit as well. Mm-hmm. And I'd love you. Uh, one of the, toward the end of the book, you get into uh, the interesting relationship or dynamics between Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. And Billy Graham, who is so revered in the evangelical movement, my grandmother, that was her favorite person, favorite preacher. Everything stopped when Billy Graham was on television. And he's rightly revered in a lot of ways. But uh, he and Martin Luther King Jr. had an interesting relationship. And it seems like there were a lot of missed opportunities for Dr. Graham. Share share that with us.
2: That's right. That's right. So that chapter is uh, on the civil rights movement. And it was probably the hardest chapter to write for a couple of reasons. One, it's been so studied and there's so much data out there. And two, it's sort of in the time period that I study in my program. So I had way too much data, in fact, in my head to try to figure it out. And so I finally landed on, with the help of editors, looking at this sort of two really different ways to practice the same faith. So both King and Graham are Christians, they're they're leaders in the church, they're ordained, uh, but they approach race relations really, really differently in one of the most momentous uh, eras in U.S. race relations. And so Billy Graham is the epitome of a very white, evangelical, attempting to be colorblind and highly individualistic kind of approach to race relations. Michael Emerson and Christian Smith really articulate it well in their sociological study, Divided by Faith. Uh, But what they highlight in that book is what I think is central to white evangelicalism in the United States, which is its individuality. And so uh, Graham would look at something like what they called a riot, um, an uprising in other nomenclature in Los Angeles. And he went to the, the Watts uprising in the aftermath and flew in a helicopter with a bulletproof vest on and came away saying that we need more law and order. And King also looked at the aftermath of these uprisings, but he walked the streets. He talked to people. He wasn't you know flying above it or behind a vest. And he comes away saying, a, a riot is the language of the unheard. And that's a massive difference in perspective, and you can sort of extrapolate that all throughout the civil rights movement and beyond where uh, white evangelicals, as epitomized in many ways by Billy Graham, looked at racial, racial problems, and they were what King called in his letter from a Birmingham jail, the white moderate. These are not the raging, foaming-at-the-mouth racists that you would get with a Bull Connor or a George Wallace or a Ku Klux Klan member. These are the sort of polite, genteel folks who, um, you know, maybe think that black people should have equal rights, but what's with all this protesting? What's with all this militancy? Why can't you just be patient? Uh, no, we don't need to bring politics into it. That was that approach. As, a, as opposed to uh, Martin Luther King and, and really the Black church tradition of saying that Black civil rights and human rights are part and parcel of the mission and call of Christianity, because it's about human dignity, it's about loving your neighbor, and we have waited for centuries And we're not going to wait anymore. We're going to demand what is ours and God-given because God created us. And so they're just, just very different approaches that I think honestly persist to this day. And thinking about the evangelical movement is, it seems like, and you
1: point this out in the book, it seems to have had a love-hate relationship with politics, at least overtly. Often when it's convenient, maybe it's out of convenience that evangelicals will say, well, we have nothing to do with politics. We're interested in individual souls, and we don't." politics would just be get in the way of that. But then in the 1980s, with the rise of the moral majority, the evangelical movement became very wed to politics in a very overt way. Tell us about that evolution and what you see in evangelicalism and politics.
2: <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's, it's always been selective. And um, the truth is that evangelicals and white Christians in general have always been involved in politics, as we saw with the 1667 uh, Virginia Assembly. But you can look at other movements like uh, prohibition. You can look at the ERA, Equal Rights Amendment, in the 70s. You can look at Bob Jones University. And uh, how they were fighting the IRS because they wanted to keep their rule against interracial dating. You can look at uh, the the controversy over evolution and textbooks and prayer in school and Bible in school. so, Christians and evangelicals specifically have always been involved. They've just picked and show. They just pick and choose which issues to get involved in. And when it comes to race, it's all of a sudden hands off, step back from the table. We're not supposed to be political, and this is also not modern either. In the 1790s. Baptists uh, had passed a resolution at the General Convention saying that you couldn't be a member in good standing and be a slave owner. Well, they, they sent that back to the local churches, and there was such an uproar and pushback that they rescinded that statement. And so they had the opportunity there to, to uh, make a statement, not really even just politically, but but even just ecclesiastically, and shrank back from it because when it came to race, it was a whole different set of rules. The same thing has played out in politics, but I think it's, it's really stark since the late 70s on up to now where you see this almost one-to-one allegiance between white evangelicalism and uh, the modern Republican Party. Uh, So that has been extremely troublesome because it's characterized one political party as, quote-unquote, the Christian party, and that has left out a whole bunch of people, if not the majority of Christians, who aren't Republican (laughs) um, and, and don't think that you need to be Republican in order to be a Christian in good standing. But it's an incredibly resilient sticky idea that is only enhanced and reinforced by this informational ecosystem that's very closed. I mean, just to be blunt, it includes things like Fox News and Breitbart and uh, a whole machine of very opinionated things that are in anything but fair and balanced. And it's so hard to pop that bubble with any kind of other different perspectives. And that's what I've run into. I thought you know, from about 2010 to 2015, that the most controversial thing to talk about was just race. And then when you got into the 2016 election cycle, what I experienced is it was far more controversial to talk about politics.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too. Uh, this time is is uh, an interesting challenge for us, too, is, is do we become a, a more of a collective consciousness? Do we come together, uh, truly come together? Do we Act together more as one, and I think the jury is still out on that. We're still, we're obviously still seeing some polarization around a lot of different issues. That maybe this pandemic is even <laughs> going amping up, but there's some hope too. And we have seen, you know, people really maybe reaching out across lines, and you see some instances of that. I wanted to ask you this too. One of the other divides I think that this time illustrates is not only the divide between white privilege in communities of color but generational divides you're a millennial as well as a person of color and i wanted to ask you this as a millennial how has the pandemic affected you and your peers especially those in what's called the gig economy and maybe for the us dinosaurs tell us what the gig economy is and but but tell us how you what you're hearing from your fellow millennials
2: and what your experience of this the, this time over this last month has been yeah i think that's a really important question uh, so the gig economy is the in in the modern economy it's it's the move toward not just a single career or vocation where somebody clocks in and out 9 to 5 has the same career for 10 20 years has a pension and all that what Millennials have is a pastiche of occupations, and so if you ask me what I do, I'm going to tell you I'm a grad student. I'm uh, I help run a nonprofit. I'm a speaker. I'm a writer, and all of these things are like they're just gigs, you know, almost like a band would play a gig here and a gig there, and and, and you just you know collect different jobs to to try to make ends meet. In a gig economy, this has been severely impacted. By the coronavirus pandemic, so I had four different speaking engagements uh, in the month of March that got canceled because we weren't traveling anymore. We couldn't meet in large groups, and so those were paid opportunities that severely affected, you know, our family. And uh, thankfully, my wife works and can work from home, but she she works in a nonprofit, and so giving goes down. So we're we're not sure what that looks like, you know, for months on end. A lot of my friends are in a similar situation. And not only that, with the job situation, we're also getting to the age where we're having to care for our parents. And so my major concern is, you know, my parents who are both in their 70s and their health, um, uh, my friends in similar situations, oftentimes we're not living in the same town or the same state. So it's hard to sort of physically check up on and be present and Because of social distancing, we're not even supposed to do that in a lot of cases. So it's really had a a major impact on everyone. And I think you're right to, to sort of think through it generationally because it looks a little bit different depending on where you are in life.
1: Sure, sure. And, you know, our, uh, as we were talking about, our, our, our system right now, what we implement our passed last week uh, assumes you have a bank account. Uh, some of the orders assume you have a home to go to. But also, the unemployment insurance assumes you have a, a steady employer who's been paying into the unemployment system. But if you're an Uber driver, as well as a podcaster, as well as a speaker, as well as a this, as well as a that, <laughs> maybe not. That's right. So it's another thing that I think uh, we we need to the, the church needs to bring to people's attention.
2: That's right. I mean, I I don't know how we complicate it so much. If we're supposed to care for our neighbors, whether that's our geographical neighbor or our sort of civic neighbor, you know, what does that look like? And and as you look back through U.S. history, I'm grading papers and they're writing about the the Progressive Era when um you know there were a lot of reforms in the government and then moving on toward the Great Depression and the New Deal era. And I'm of the opinion that politically, America was at its best when it's trying to care for the poor, trying to care for the most vulnerable. And I do think that people of faith have a very strong position to be able to advocate for some of those kinds of things. Not that Politics and policy is the end-all, be-all of faith, but it's a really public statement, a public declaration of how we care for and feel about other people. And so I, my prayer is that, that as people of, of God, we have the hearts of servants, that we would consider others before ourselves, and that we would advocate for those policies and practices that do just that.
1: And when you and I talked in February, you were involved in, uh, uh, start, uh, well, I think starting or amping up a nonprofit organization uh, called the Witness Foundation, and you were so excited in sharing that with our book study group. February 19th seems a year ago, though. It does. <laughs> and, uh, yes. uh, you, but you, uh, I want to hear uh, how that is going for you and for the others who are involved with that, but also what what's happening in the nonprofit
2: world. How has this coronavirus pandemic affected that? Well, thank you for bringing up the Witness Foundation. That is a new endeavor that I'm really excited about. And probably since we've talked, we've refined the concept a bit. And so it was birthed out of um, my own experience and that of other black Christians who, honestly, because of the racial wealth gap and things associated with that, we don't have access to the kind of networks or funds that a lot of white Christians do. In order to do our sort of nonprofit work, specifically work that's focused on uh, the Black community, and so we struggle and we scrape by. And you know, my organization, the Witness, has never had much money at all. And I'm thinking of ways to sort of break that cycle and how to empower leaders to follow their sort of God-given vision for doing good in the world. And so what we came up with is the Witness Foundation, which our goal now is to have an annual cohort of 10 Black Christian leaders who we can fund at $50,000 a year for two years. And it's sort of like a MacArthur Genius Grant type of thing, where you find motivated, driven, creative individuals who want to do good in the world because of their faith, who are uh, African of African descent— And you free them up financially to just go and and do what they do and see what happens. Uh, So these could be leaders of nonprofits. These could be artists, um, a lot of different things. And so we're trying to raise um, $1.2 million annually uh, to fund the program. And we also want to create an endowment. So ideally, we uh, raise more than that. And anything beyond the annual program fee actually goes to start an endowment so that in the long run, we can uh, fund the program through interest off of that endowment and not rely on yearly donations.
1: Great. And, uh, and I'll give you a moment for another shameless plug. Do you have a website or, or a
2: way that people <laughs> could get involved if they'd like to give or learn more about the work? Yes, thank you. It's thewitnessfoundation.co, thewitnessfoundation.co, and uh, you can make a donation online, can be one-time or recurring, but it is an investment in Black Christian leadership and long-term in uh, Black Christian ministry. And one last question, Jamar. What's next for Jamar Tisby
1: in terms of uh, uh, (laughs) book projects? Or uh, I know you're obviously working on your Ph.D. and the struggles right now with with what's going on. But uh, are there research interests or other interests that you have that uh, you're chomping at the bits to, to do
2: right now? Well then, I can say this: my my for sure, for sure, next project is the this dissertation. I'm sure uh, Dr. Wilson will be happy <laughs> to yeah, hear that. So he's one of our faithful listeners, yes. right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, my big writing project for at least the next year is is just research and writing. I'm looking at Black Christian responses to the Black Power movement. Really excited about it because it gets to issues of racial identity, religious identity, um, political and social movements. So it kind of uh, incorporates all of my interests in, in what I think is going to be a, a pretty unique uh, project. And then beyond that, I, I, my passion is to make history accessible to people. So I want to do podcasts, I want to do article writing, I want to do short videos, I want to use every form of media and technology available to tell the story because that's what history is. It's stories, it's context, it's people. That's why I'm so passionate about it. It it really gets to the heart of who we are because we can write down on paper what we believe. We can pass a, a law or a measure, but history is about what people actually did and the way they lived, and it's the testimony of their lives. And I think we have so much more to learn, even about events that we think are familiar, like the Civil Rights Movement or something like that. Uh, there's so much more to learn. I'm so excited every time I get to read more and learn more, and I want other people to to come along that journey with me.
1: We can't wait and look forward to the next steps in the Jamar Tisby journey, and just delighted to uh, join you for this conversation. And Your passion, your energy, and your intelligence around all these issues is just uh, illuminating to all of us, and, and uh, delighted to have you today. In our one of the first in our series of podcasts, I want to share with our Calvary folks and other folks around the country, around the world, that if you have suggestions of other people we may talk to, as Jamar was saying, what will be interesting, uh, well, he and I were talking before our podcast, uh, will we continue to do these kind of technology things after we get back to normal, whatever normal is? The church has been talking for years, oh, we ought to make use of the new technology to do podcasts, Zoom video Bible studies, and we're doing all that now, live streaming worship. But uh, how can, How can we continue to make use of this technology It's been wonderful, the outreach that this has had And we're delighted that Jamar is one of the first For our conversations today Thank you so much, Jamar Uh, Again, I'm Paul McLean, Associate Rector of Calvary Episcopal Church Thank you all for joining us
0: The Calvary Podcast is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary And thanks to you for listening